Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, confronting ISIS. So Richard, we are recording this podcast on September 9th. We have word that President Obama is going to address the nation tomorrow night on the threat posed by ISIS. We don't know exactly what he'll say, of course, whether there are going to be any notable shifts in policy or whether this is just going to be an attempt to clarify and sort of formalize what he's already said. So let's talk about what he's already said. Uh, one of the things that President Obama has emphasized since this threat has emerged is the the need for coalition building and he especially wants local factions around the areas where ISIS is operating to be involved in putting a plan together. What do you make of the way the president is emphasizing multilateralism? Well, I think the great risk of this is that multilateralism often becomes an excuse for delay uh, because there's no unique solution that you could get to the coalition problem and everybody's going to try and get something out of somebody else which the other people don't want to do. So they're inherent conflicts of interest. Uh, but you can't take time out on the domestic side, as it were, to organize your coalition when the other guy is continuing to play. And so I think in effect that what really has to happen is the president has to reverse the priorities. He has to start doing things unilaterally, which will make it more likely that other people want to join into a coalition with him. Now, this becomes particularly important because it's also tied in with his general prohibition, uh, self-imposed on ground troops, which means that a large portion of the work is going to have to be to train, say, Kurdish fighters to take on ISIS. And I don't know whether that's a weak proposition, which seems highly unlikely, or a month, or perhaps six months or a year. And so what happens is if it takes you time to build the coalition, what are you going to do with their aggrandizements of space? What are you going to do with their slaughter of innocent people? What are you going to do about the potential threats that they'll be able to mount some kind of an attack using one of their American passport holders or British passport holders um, in either the United States or England? So I essentially think that dithering may be too strong a word. I don't believe that he is simply uh, refusing to face any kind of reality, but I think this is a case in which too much caution can kill. And of course, this is all cutting against the grain for the president, who's always thought of himself pretty self-evidently as, as someone who's pulling America back for military conflict rather than taking us in. That may be part of the reason, Richard, that we've had the use of American force against ISIS primarily thus far limited to airstrikes. There's this notion that airstrikes are sometimes a political cop-out because they're antiseptic. They don't expose you to the same kind of vulnerabilities that having ground troops does. But I know you think – from reading your piece in Defining Ideas, that that's, that's inadequate here, don't you? Well, I mean, as, what I did is I pointed out in a whole number of other situations, most really the Gazan conflict, where when the Israelis realized that there were embedded tunnels and rockets which you couldn't get through the air, at some considerable cost to themselves, about 70 troops dead, what they did is they mounted a sustained land offensive. Because what happens is if you attack from the air and people know that it's only from the air, they dig deeper and they're not worried nearly as much about disruption that would otherwise take place. Building deeper gives you fortifications and building deeper makes it more difficult for aerial intelligence to attack you. And building deeper gives you an element of surprise if somebody tries to come in on the land because you could pop up behind them. And I just don't think that the president has taken into account that uh, the 
inadequacy of an air force, even when working to ideal perfection, creates these options. So he's going to have to go in eventually with ground troops or send in Kurdish troops. He's going to have to tell whatever ground troops he has or own to those of other nations, look, it's a riskier business now because I spent six months building coalition. And if you want to get the Kurds in, I think the way in which you do it is to say, look, we're going forward and we expect you to go forward. We're going to lead you. You can follow us. We're going to support you by air power. But I don't think you want to tell them that we're going to wait six months while your women and children are slaughtered. Right, and you made the point in your article as well that this is this is different, and ground troops are maybe more appropriate here, precisely because ISIS has captured territory, right? Because they're not just guys hiding out in caves. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about sending ground troops in is you have to know what you're looking for. There are cases where you have to do that as well. When the Israelis went into Janine in order to clean out the pockets of terrorists, essentially they had to go building by building and they realized that every building is a cube and they would then fix which particular way they'd go in, floor, ceiling, roof, but never through the door. And it turned out to be a remarkably effective device to keep the system in play. Uh, but if they're trying to run a caliphate, if they're trying to put together instruments of government, they have to have some permanent physical presence. That means that they have a newfound vulnerability, which is going to be easier for you to exploit. And the last thing you want to do is to wait for them to get rockets or anti-aircraft missiles or something of the sort, which would complicate that kind of measure. So I think, in effect, what the president doesn't realize is that the discount rate on money is relatively low, but the discount rate with respect to the effectiveness of forces is very steep. And it's not going to cost you just 5% more to wait a year. It's going to cost you two, three, or 10 times as much as it might otherwise do. And since he doesn't seem to have the temporal equations right, I think he's risking courting disaster. Richard, there's been some debate here over what the president's responsibility is as far as taking military action to Congress. Uh, what's the proper standard? What does he need to do in your judgment to be in the clear on legal terms? God, this is an issue for which nobody really has a very good answer. I mean, the first thing I think to understand is that the president has already taken military action. Right. Whether you look at the War Powers Act, whether you look at the power to declare war, whether you look at the authorization for the use of military force or the AUMF, um, I'm not aware, except in the mind of Howard Coe, Howard Harold Coe, that there's a distinction between air and land forces. All of these things are, in fact, warlike activities. So I think he's already crossed that Rubicon. And announced that I've got some kind of authorization somewhere along the line and I don't think that anything that steps things up is going to have any major change on the legal position. So then the question is, where does he stand with respect to the air uh, to the airstrikes? Well, this is always a very messy type situation to think about. First of all, what does it mean to declare war? The customary account is to declare war is you go to Congress like Roosevelt did after Pearl Harbor and you get both houses to vote on a declaration of war and then you the president sort of sign on so there's no question whatsoever about constitutional authorization power or anything of the sort uh, but if you go back and look at some of the historical research uh, the declarations of war are said to be not only expressed but also to be implied and implied could be either you see something happening in congress and don't do anything to stop it uh, so it's a kind of a, an authorization by indirection or it could be that you continue to appropriate funds for the particular activity, which would only make sense if you believe that it ought to go forward. And we don't know whether the president needs new funds for this is using existing funds, but it's quite clear that there's nobody in Congress who's yet raised a peep of protest against the Air Force type situation. So it seems to me that you can make a pretty respectable case that there is in fact some kind of implied activities in question. 
But it's not just that. There are two other ways you could think about it. One of them, is this an emergency which allows the president to go without a declaration of war? It's well established when you go back that if somebody launches a direct frontal attack on the United States and Congress is dispersed to the four winds, the president in charge of the military doesn't have to bring them back before he resists. You can always do this. Well, is this self-defense? Well, remember, they beheaded two American citizens. They put other American citizens at risk. They put our allies at risk, to whom we're bound by treaty in many cases to start to proceed. Well, you could argue that the emergency exception applies here and that he's allowed to start, which then shifts the burden to Congress, arguably, we don't know for sure, uh, to come in and to stop. So you're right back where you were with the applied authorization. Then there's the third thing is the AUMF, which says essentially the president's got a blank check after uh, about September 20th, 2001, uh, to go after organizations that are either al-Qaeda or harbor al-Qaeda. And now what we do is we have a kind of a corporate reorganization question. This ISIS crowd is obviously a spin-off from, but is not the same as al-Qaeda. Would they be caught by the resolution? And I can't believe for the life of me that the reorganization of our mortal enemies in terms of separate and new organizations would influence the power. So my inclination, at least, would be to think that the AUMF covers this. So there are three arguments, none of which is airtight, all which seem to be more respectful than not. So I think in the end, it's not going to be the legal issues that are going to slow anybody down on this particular case. I think it's the president's view uh, that ground troops are risky and he just seems to be very weak in getting alternative kinds of hazards under his sort of intellectual control. He is much too timid in my judgment, given the nature of this particular peril. What about non-military steps, Richard? You reference in your piece for Defining Ideas a recent column that Tom Friedman wrote in which he approvingly cites the notion that if you open up oil exports, American oil exports, uh, you hurt ISIS and for that matter you hurt uh, Vladimir Putin by bringing down the price of oil, which both of them rely on to a certain extent. So uh, let's let's decouple the two questions that Friedman seems to conflate there. One – is that a good idea? Two, isn't an idea that actually helps you short-term strategically when it comes to dealing with these enemies? I mean it is not only a good idea. It's such a good idea that this idea should have been put into place 100 years ago. Um, one of the key features about running a strong nation is that you try to create exports. In many cases, what the United States does quite indefensibly is to try to create export cartels under the Wet Pomerine Act from 1918 repeatedly strengthened, which we allow you to sell. Not only do we allow you to sell, but if you have something like a commodity in which you have real control, a potash or whatever it may happen to be, um, then in effect what you can do is you could organize and raise the commodity prices. I have no use whatsoever for that. But it seems to me we want American companies to be selling overseas. We want them to stimulate domestic production. We want this whether there's an ISIS or whether it turns out there's a Putin. It's just an extra benefit that if it turns out you get these two guys, uh, that this oil threat is very powerful. And the reason it is so credible is it doesn't require cooperation by anybody else in order for it to be effective. That is, these oil markets or world markets and energy, even if you don't sell a drop of oil to the Ukraine or to Western Europe, you're selling it somewhere else. Some other supply shifts into these particular markets. The price goes down. So if you try and commandeer Iraqi fields or to blow them up, it's less disastrous. So of course you want to do all of this. But remember, this takes time. Getting stuff overseas after you've had a ban requires that you put shipping networks into place, establish long-term contracts. Let's suppose 
suppose you can do this really well in, in maybe a month or two or three. You still have the short-term peril. And if these guys are stockpiling some of their wealth, um, that stockpiled wealth is going to be largely immune to what you're going to do with respect to the oil side. So and the answer is yes, of course you do it. But the thought that this is a substitute for anything short-term is a mistake. And one of the sad things about the Friedman column is he announces he doesn't have any real idea of what you want to do. And you know, my view is simply – I'm not going to tell the president when to attack and how to attack. This is not the job of a law professor to say the least. But the categorical reluctance to use ground troops is to me something which no rational person would do if in fact you could assume that adding them into the mix with respect to defined targets could improve the overall operation. You got lots of complications, but you got them even if you use air power. Do you bomb Syria? Do you bomb Assad? Do you bomb both of these guys? Do you first take out ISIS and then go after that? Those are problems that arise with respect to aircraft. And what's happened is the delay has basically reduced the president's strategic options. So all of these choices are more difficult now than they would have been six months ago. So final question, Richard. In your piece for defining ideas, you cast the president's shortcomings here in, in personal terms. And let, let me quote you. You write, one reason for his dogged persistence – lies in his flawed worldview which deep down regards the United States and Israel as akin to colonial powers whose actions should always be examined under a presumption of distrust. His ingrained uneasiness with the values of Western civilization makes it impossible for him to think and act as the leader of a Western nation. Now, you're describing traits here that sound fundamental to the president's personality. So yes. with that with that in mind, any hope for improvement in the two and a half years or so that's left? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the tendencies have only gotten stronger than not weaker. I mean, I think he's right. the only president who, when he starts to talk about American, if it's exceptionalism, it's the bad stuff rather than the good stuff. And I think he's always had this sort of intellectual style of trying to be an impartial judge against rival groups. And you can tell that in this particular case because, as I also mentioned in this column, the president doesn't like to use the word terrorist. He likes to use the word extremist. But that's what he calls Republicans. And, you know, it can't be the case, whatever he thinks about the Republicans, that he wants to equate them with ISIS. So he's got to find some different terms. And the moment you switch to the term terrorism, what you're doing in effect is ruling out all possibility of legitimate um, legitimate behavior on the part of those whom you condemn with that term, which is exactly what you need. Then once you rule it out, then the only question is how you polish them off. It's not the question of whether or not they have some residual value or earn some residual respect, which would lead you to see some sort of a compromise with respect to the way in which they operate. And in fact, in general, I think the president does not believe that the people against him are as bad as it turns out that they are. He's always trying to work resets with a guy like Putin, and his attitude is what's yours is mine, is negotiable, but mine is mine. So you want to put things on the, pre the table, president? and I'll take them and I'll give you a vague promise. We'll do it tomorrow. And that strategy stems from the fact he doesn't believe that the United States, in fact, represents under these circumstances a genuine force for good. And when I talked earlier on about the Pax Americana, what it means in effect is if you're a dominant power, your self-interest is in world long-term stability, so you're willing in any particular conflict to essentially come out and contribute more to the common cause than all the people from whom you're demanding stuff. And if you look at the way the president talks about these factions, that's not what he's doing. It's kind of like if you guys get your act together and you take 80% of the brunt, I'll take 20% of the brunt. 
But what he really ought to be doing is saying, here's a huge amount that I'm putting up front and I want you guys to follow. I don't think being cagey is what gets you where you want. And you tend to be cagey if you're really not completely confident in the soundness of the positions that you hold. You know, his mother was very much in the anthropological world of the United States being a kind of an aberrant power. I think a lot of that rubs off on the president. And I wish that he realizes that that's fine if you're writing newspaper columns and if you're writing your autobiography, God bless. But if you're the leader of the United States and of the free world, you just cannot have those kinds of doubts when you go forward trying to rally support behind you. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.